Bibles, you're going to need them. So get those out. We'll work on the video, see what we can figure out there. If you don't have a Bible, there's a table in the back here. BTW, that's by the way for all you folks not into the abreves. Uh, we've got a, a bowl back here, uh, a, a pottery bowl uh, that is filled with some yarn and some, what do they call those things? You knitters? Needle. Well, yeah, okay. <laughs> Pretty easy. Needles. Uh, community knit. Okay, the idea is uh, if you knit and you like to just do things with your hands while you listen, uh, grab the community knit. We've got a scarf going, and when the scarf's done, we'll give it to somebody in the community that needs it, and we'll start something else. So there's the bowl uh, in the pot right back there. <laughs> Dangerously close. I'm just going to lose my gum here so you guys don't have to do that. Oh, this is going well. If you could turn off all cell phones and noisemakers, <laughs> that'd be awesome. Uh, all right, so we're in week three of a series called The Story. Uh, we have covered creation and uh, the fall or sin last week. Last week, if you were here, was a little morose, uh, a little, we ended a little down, but that's okay. Um, so let me begin this morning. Uh, I don't read a lot of fiction, okay? I know that's hard for some of you to believe, but most of the time when I'm found with a book, it's nonfiction and has something to do with theology. Uh, there's a category in our culture for those people. They're called nerds. Uh, I would fit into that category most of the time. Every once in a great while, I've, I've, been, I've picked up a work of fiction. In fact, when I was in seminary, my, one of my professors said, um, you know, Micah, you're a great thinker. Um, your writing, on the other hand, could use a little work. Uh, you know, and I would encourage you, pick up a great work of fiction. So if you guys, any of you struggle, this is for you, not in the notes. If you struggle with writing, if you're a seminary student or college student, read good fiction. That's what I've been told. I don't know if it works or not, but um, long story short, uh, longer, uh, I read, there have been a couple times in my life when I've been, man, everybody just loosen up, if you would, okay, loosen up. There have been a couple times in my life when I have been reading a work of fiction, and uh, it's, the, it's those moments where you literally can't put the book down. Okay? I watched a great movie last night, Inception, alone. I watched it by myself. You want to know why? Because Laura had found a book that she could not put down. She read like 300 pages yesterday. My mom was over, and uh, we were watching football, and she's like, do you guys mind if I just read my book? And we're like, cool, whatever. Um, so, But it was this deal... Couldn't put it down. Couldn't put it down. It's happened to me a couple times. I read The Shack. Couldn't put it down. I read Da Vinci Code. Whether or not you think that's a good book and a good work of literature, I don't know. But it's a compelling story nonetheless. You know, a couple. Of, I've, I've read some great ones. James and the Giant Peach. Yeah. Island, Island of the Blue Dolphins. Scott O'Dell. Love that guy. Love that guy. Great. Where the Red Fern Grows. Huh? How many people? Re- yes. Great, great book. But it's this, it's this thing that happens when you pick up a great story. It, it compels you. It actually captures you. It captures your imagination and your heart and draws you in. Because that's what good stories do. Uh, it's our conviction. It's our conviction at Awaken that this story, while sometimes can be confusing, just the way it's ordered and historically and all that, if you get the major parts of it, it's a, it's, it is, and I say this without without any jest, it is a story of truly epic proportions. It is the story of all stories. Any good story that's ever been told, Lord of the Rings, The Matrix, uh, you know, Gulliver, uh, I don't know, some of the older ones, Shakespeare stuff, any great story you've ever read, it, it, 
it takes a nod from this story because it's got all of the best parts of a good story. Uh, and this is what we're really after in this series. That's why we started this series. That's why we're doing this series. Six weeks really trying to answer the question, what's the story that the Bible is telling? So, um, uh, again, last week we, we ended with uh, the fall, and it was a little somber because really, um, I think it was Milton, he probably stole this, paradise was lost, right? Genesis 1 and 2 tells this unbelievable, paints this picture of a paradise, of this shalom, this peace, this beautiful creation that God's made, and that's lost. And God's hopes and his dreams for creation are shattered by the choices of humans. So um, just for review as we start this morning, if shalom, this idea of shalom in, in the Hebrew understanding, is this idea of universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. So as you think about peace and shalom or harmony, that was in Genesis 1 and 2, that's what we're talking about. Universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. We learned last week that sin, then, is the culpable disturbance of shalom. Sin is any time we, on purpose or uh, explicitly or implicitly, disturb or go against the grain of, go against the flow of what God has created as shalom. This universal wholeness, flourishing, and delight. Uh, And so... This actually, sin, works itself out in a number of different ways. And I wanted to just say one thing about that before we move on to our text this, today. Um, we talked about sin last week and the idea that it has affected all of humanity. That there isn't any human uh, that's been born after Adam and Eve that is not affected by sin. And when sin runs its course, when evil takes its root in our hearts, we are, we are capable of some terrible, terrible things. And I want to just remind you I, want you, I want you to know something specific about Awaken this morning, and that's this. Uh, at Awaken, we talk about this idea that it's okay to not be okay. Uh, it, the idea is it's, it's okay in the sense that we recognize that we are all broken people, that each and every one of us has pieces of our story, and we have done things, and we have had things done to us that would, resu- that would be culpable disturbance of shalom. That would be sin. That would be evil at work in our hearts and in our lives. And we want to just remind each other that it's okay that we're not okay. That it's okay that we have brokenness, that we have failures, we have shortcomings, and that when you come to church, the idea isn't get it all together before you walk in the door, but actually we want to say to be authentic and to be real and open and honest is okay. It's okay to not be okay. Uh, And so I I just want to encourage you... um, This is the kind of community that we want to be, and this is the kind of community that I think the church should be in general. Um, But be that as it may, this week in the story, uh, we see, so if you have creation and then you have sin, what we see in week three or chapter three is the creator's move and loving move towards and into creation. Uh, We find a God who is rolling up his proverbial sleeves and getting himself physically and personally and emotionally involved in what's happened in creation. Uh, We find in story language, the protagonist is about to overcome great adversity and challenge to get something back that he's lost. Remember, that's kind of the definition of story. Any great story has someone who's willing to overcome adversity to get something back or to get something. So it's important for us um, as we enter this this week because... The plan, if you have creation and fall, the plan or the response or the the action of God on behalf of and into creation is called Israel. And it's important that we understand Israel in story language because for many of us as Christians and especially evangelicals, 
the Jewish people are more connected to the Holocaust and Germany than they are to the Bible and the story of God. When we say, uh, when we talk about the Jewish people or Hebrew culture, many of us maybe connect it more deeply to what happened in, in Germany in, in the Second World War. And it's my estimation, it's my deep conviction, which is why today we're going to labor through this, but it's, I would say, it's fundamental and it's absolutely essential because as we understand Israel, I would argue equally or, or um, as to the degree that we understand Israel is the degree that we understand Jesus, especially as the gospel writers tell the story. To the degree that we understand who Israel was in the story equals or is, is as much important as or, or will affect how we understand Jesus in the rest of the story. If we understand Israel's role in the story, then I think our understanding of Jesus and the church becomes that much bigger. And especially, again, how the gospel writers portray Jesus and tell the story of Jesus. Because you have four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they're not on autopilot. Okay? They wrote those books and they had particular reasons for saying the things that they said and ordering the material in the way that they did. Because they tell this story in certain ways. As insofar as we understand Israel, we understand Jesus. So that's why this is important. Israel becomes the means by which the biblical authors tell the story of a God who acts on behalf of and in creation in this story to redeem and take back all that has been lost. So if everything is lost in Genesis 3, Israel becomes the means by which God attempts to get it back, which is huge. It's huge. So I want to do this in three ways, I want, or I want to do this uh, in three parts. I'm going to ask three questions, because this is a huge topic. I want to ask how, who, and where, as it pertains to Israel. And Ben and I are going to kind of interplay and go back and forth with some music and some teaching. Uh, if you want to stand in, while we sing, please stand. Don't feel like that's necessary. You do whatever you need to do. So first, I want to ask the question, how? How does, the, how does God bring this group of people into the world? So if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 12. I want to walk us through a couple of key passages from a Jewish perspective on the, the, the Genesis or the beginning of Israel as a group of people. It starts in, of course, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. You have a guy named Abraham. And here's an interesting study, if you like biblical stories and uh, the nuance. Read the end of Genesis 11. Hey, you have a guy named Terah. Terah was Abraham's father. Read that story and ask the question, why was the blessing not given to, Ab to Terah? Why, was, why, why is Terah not the guy who gets what, he, what Abraham gets in Genesis chapter 12? Very, very, very interesting uh, dialogue going on there. The, the, the rabbis call it the Midrash, which is the, the, the space between the text. Really, really cool stuff. But anyhow, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abraham, or Abram, leave your country, your people, your father's household. Go to the land I will show you. And here's the, here's the promise of God to Abraham. He says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed by you. So Genesis 1, creation. Genesis 2 or 3, uh, sin in the fall. Genesis 12 is the first time where God initiates, where God moves towards creation. And through this group of people, Israel, God says, I'm going to take you, Abraham, and I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make a covenant, a promise to you. I'm going to enter a relationship 
with you, Abraham, and through you and your descendants, all of the rest of the world will be blessed. All of creation will be blessed. Maybe you could say it this way. Abraham, through you, I'm going to redeem all of creation. I'm going to take back all that's been lost in and through sin and the fall in Genesis chapter 3. So that's the beginning. That's the first point. Now scoot over to Exodus chapter 6. So you have this promise that's given to the Jews. Um, you have the story of Joseph and the Technicolor dream code. You have... Uh, you have Joseph ending up in Egypt. There's a famine in the land, and all of the, uh, his brothers come to Egypt, and they end up in Egypt as slaves, which, of course, is where we get the story of the Exodus, where God um, says, I've heard the cry of my people in, 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 in Egypt, and I'm going to take them out. I'm going to get them out. So for a Jewish person, especially uh, in the first century and, and later, this passage in Isaiah chapter, or I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 6 is really important because it's God's promise to do something with Israel who's stuck in Egypt. So he says this, chapter 6, verse 6. Therefore, say to the Israelites, and, and they would say these are the four I wills of Exodus 6. I am the Lord your God. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves with them or to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. So you have this promise given to Abraham in Genesis 12, and then you have the, the Israelites stuck in Egypt as slaves. God hears their cry, and he says, I promise to do this. I will redeem you. I will take you as my people. I will give you this land, I will, and I will be your God. This is big on the landscape of the story of the Jews. Flip over to Exodus chapter 14. Now, this is where it gets really interesting from a Jewish perspective. The rabbis would say that there were a couple of different creative acts or creative moments in the, in the biblical story. One would be Genesis chapter 12, or I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, where God spoke into creation. The second would be this moment where in Exodus 14, the Israelites have been, they're coming out of Egypt, the plagues have happened, Wah! the frogs, the plagues, the locusts, everything. Firstborn is dead. The Israelites come out of Egypt and they're standing and, and on one side of them is the Red Sea and behind them are the, Isra uh, are the Egyptians who are pursuing them. And it's this moment, Exodus chapter 14, verse 26, we'll start in. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and their horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak the sea went back into its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed over the chariots and horsemen and the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived, but the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. Imagine in your mind, you're standing next to the sea, all of a sudden it opens, and there's a wall of water on your left and a wall of water on your right. And you, as an Israelite, begin to walk through what appears to be, uh, looks very much like a canal, right? Water on your right, water on your left. Most of the people who've interpreted the scriptures through the ages have been men. Not a lot of women have talked about this. More recently, more women are studying the scriptures. Does anyone have a faint guess as to what this image looks like for a woman? Birth. 
The rabbis believe that it's this moment where Israel, as a people group, is born, conceived in Genesis 12, where God promises to Abraham. But this is the moment, because really they have a choice. They can either, they can either go, go through the sea that, that's there, the, 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 the pathway that's there, or they can go back to where they had food and uh, three squares a day, and though they were slaves, everything was probable, it was, it was, it was predictable, and they knew what to expect. And there's a choice in this moment for the Israelites. And, and scholars would say that this is another creative act where God creates, constitutes this people, births this group of people as they go through this canal, this birth canal, as it were, of water on their right and water on their left. So if you're a Jewish person and you're asking the question, how does God answer the question of Genesis chapter 3? Genesis 12, Exodus 6, Exodus 14 big texts. Now, there are others that, that, are, that are important, but I wanted to highlight three of those. Every story has a character who's willing to overcome adversity to get something. And there is this beautiful scene in Genesis 1 and 2 where you have shalom, universal, cosmic, flourishing, wholeness, and delight, which is lost in Genesis 3. Humans exercise free will, and that's lost. It's shattered. And what happens is they choose themselves. They choose, essentially, they choose self instead of other. Uh, they, they use this free will to promote themselves instead of uh, living for the other and living with God. And we're introduced to this concept called sin. Paradise is lost. And what God wants in creation is lost at that moment. The God of this story then gets himself personally involved with creation by creating this group of people through whom he plans to redeem the world through. This is the story of the Israelites. This is how they began. Ben's going to lead us in a song that talks about this awesome God. Because if you're a Jewish person, this is exactly what you're... This is, this is the tone of, of, of the story at this point. God is incredible. He's just saved you. He's, he has, the mighty acts of God have been seen over and over and over again in the Exodus story. So let's sing this song and we'll, we'll come back and answer question two. Who? So this is what happened or how it happened. And then who? Who was Israel actually supposed to be? What was their role? What was their job? What was their vocation in the world as a group of people? Because obviously if God comes to you and says, hey, Abraham, Abram, I'm going to bless you and bless all of the people that, that come from you. There's, your descendants will be as, as many as the uh, sea on the seashore, sand on the seashore. Sally sells sand by the seashore. Uh, but, but of course, there's no... No purpose in it. Of course, that's not what happened. There's got to be a purpose. So, um, what's the purpose, the goal, or the end? Uh, let me back up here. Um, interact with me, if you will. Uh, from what you've heard so far in our series, let me ask you a question. What's the purpose or the goal or the end, the telos, if you will? It's the purpose of creation. If you have any thoughts, throw it out there. What's the purpose of creation itself? Relationship. Okay, what else? Say it again. God's glory. Yep. What else? Yeah, it reflects who God is, which is this relationship in Trinity, right? What else? What's the goal? What's the, what's the purpose of it? Points to God, relationship. Uh, we've used the word shalom, right, which has in, in its very definition this idea of relationship. So if the purpose or goal of creation is this shalom or this relationship, 
then what's the purpose of Israel? Because you have to frame it in that context. If you're looking at it from a story perspective, is that, if that's the goal of creation and that's lost in Genesis 3, what then is the purpose of Israel? Why does God say to Abraham in the beginning, I'm going to bless you. Why do we have a song? Father Abraham had many sons, many sons. Why? What's the purpose? What's to mend a broken relationship or in a broken world? Israel's purpose in the world was to be a conduit for creation and, and, and humanity to be reconciled with its creator. If you have creation, the fall, and then Israel, what's lost in Genesis 3 is relationship. What's to be gained back by Israel's constitution is relationship. It's there to be the, the, the means or the conduit that this is about to happen. Israel's, uh, their purpose was to be this conduit, to be reconciled with its creator. There, um, you hear this language in the New Testament about a city on a hill, uh, and one that all the nations would see. This was, a re- this was originally meant for Israel. We talk about it now on this side of the cross and talk about the church, you know, the city on the hill, and Mac Powell puts a CD in the city on a hill, and, you know, it's a great worship album and all that. But originally, it was supposed to be for Israel. That was their job. That was their role. Um, and if you're one of the prophets, you speak about this in very specific ways, uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah particularly, and we're going to go there in a second, but... Fast forward, if you will, to Jesus in the temple. Um, Luke and Mark tell the story. Uh, Jesus walks into the temple, and what does he do? He throws over the tables, right? Most people, most preachers that I've ever heard talk about this basically say that there shouldn't be commerce in the church, you know, that there was a, there was a, a, a fundamental misconception of what the church or, or, or what the temple was supposed to be, and they were going against what was happening. I wholeheartedly disagree on all kinds of different levels. Number one, these people were supposed to be selling things to the travelers who were coming from long distances so that they had something to offer at the temple. There was nothing wrong with these people selling what they were selling, doves, pigeons, things that they could offer. Now, whether or not they were extorting them for prices over and above, we don't know the answer to that question. Could have been. I think what's really going on here is something deeper. And Jesus walks into the temple and does something symbolically by throwing over the tables of the temple and thrashing the place to say something about Israel and specifically the temple. Turn to Isaiah chapter 56, if you will. Isaiah 56, to your right, verse 7. Isaiah 56, and does anybody have headings at the front of their uh, chapter there? Does anybody know, what's your heading say above chapter 56? Salvation for others, what's yours? Blessings for all nations, chapter 56, verse 7. And these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offering and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house, does this sound familiar? My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Who, who is the these in this passage? Who, who are the people that are being referred to? The nations. When the word nations is used, it's talking about everybody else other than Israel. So the blessing wasn't to be just for Israel. It wasn't just to be about the temple and just to be about Israel as a people. The blessing was to go through the whole world, all of creation. Now look at what Jeremiah says in chapter uh, 7 of his, of his uh, letter. Jeremiah 7, one book to your right there. Jeremiah 7, verse 11 says this. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. 
So you have this, my house has become a den of robbers, and then you have the other one in Isaiah 56. This is exactly what Jesus quotes when he goes into the temple. Which is why I would argue that it's not just about selling something in the temple, but actually it's about an indictment on Israel and an indictment to the temple as a system, as a bigger thing. Because Israel had basically turned in on itself, and the temple became the place that, uh, it became sort of the epicenter of their life as a group of people. And everything happened in the temple, and God was at the temple, and basically it was all kind of in towards Israel. A couple weeks ago we talked about centrifugal and centripetal, the two different forces, right? Centrifugal sends you out, it throws you if you're on a merry-go-round and spinning around and around. Centrifugal force is what makes you fly into your friends, okay? Centripetal force is what uh, you feel on the corkscrew. It's something that draws you into the center. Israel, unfortunately, was affected by centripetal force, and I would argue that that's still around today for you and I. Here's the thing. I'm a fisherman. Uh, I love to fish. Uh, oftentimes in the fall, uh, the walleyes on Mille Lacs will chase the bait fish. And uh, if you're interested in catching large walleyes, you should follow the bait fish. The bait fish basically move into the shallows and they spawn. They, they have little babies in there and they lay their eggs. The, the walleyes, because they're smart, they follow the bait fish. And so the fishermen, if you're smart, follow the bait fish as well. So in the fall, late at night, because walleyes feed at night, they have those marbly eyes. You guys know this? They actually can see at night. Really, really cool fish. Amazing creation. We can talk about that in connection with Genesis 1 and 2, but we won't. So I, as a fisherman, launch the boat around sunset, and uh, I troll little stick baits that look like minnows in the middle of the night in the pitch black out on Mille Lacs. Now, if you've ever been to Mille Lacs, it's 12 miles wide, 19 miles across. It's a big circle. Not a lot of things to break up the wind. So some people think I'm crazy. I'm not. I'm really smart. You may not agree with me. There have been nights when I've been on Mille Lacs, one in particular with Roger, where we lost a prop. Unfortunately, it was Roger's, not mine. And uh, we tried to launch on the windy side of the lake. This is one of our early times, and we logged that in the book. You know, we tip. Don't launch your boat on the windy side of the lake because nothing stops the wind and you get massive waves. It's, it's crazy. It's dangerous. Very dangerous. And make sure you have GPS because at night, if you launch your boat and you go out a couple miles, how do you find what you're looking for coming back? You, you don't, people. You don't. You die out there. <laughs> Miramar is on the north side of Mille Lacs. And I have fished out there many times because there's a number of rock reefs. And here's the cool thing about Miramar. When you launch at Miramar, there's a harbor. And I remember one night in particular, there was a, it was kind of foggy and misty, you know, almost like you were in England or something. And it was this, this just epic, beautiful evening on Mille Lacs. The, the moon was shining. You could see it through the haze and everything. And you get out there, and it's black. Black as night. That's why I say that. You can't see anything, really. But if you look over on the shore at Miramar, there is a light, a beacon that blinks every like 10, 12 seconds. And they actually time these. Each one has a timer. So you know if you know the, the time, like what's assigned to what beacon, this is how lighthouses work. Uh, you see the light every 10 seconds, and that's such and such lighthouse. You see it? So Miramar has this beacon, and it blinks in the middle of the night. And you can go out miles and miles and miles and miles out in the middle of Mille Lacs in the pitch black at night and look back and see the shoreline, and you can see this faint blip, this beacon 
that says this is where the harbor is. This is where you've come from. This is where it's safe. You're an idiot. Get off the lake. (laughs) And it's this beacon, this beachhead of safety and a harbor and all those metaphors that go along with seafaring vessels. This was who Israel was supposed to be. Scholars talk about Eden as a beachhead. If you remember from creation, we talked about this, that, that creation in the Genesis account was, there's this chaos, there's sort of this, the, 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 water, the, the Spirit of God hovered over the sea in an ancient language. Uh, the sea is often a metaphor for chaos. And out of chaos, God makes order. And so Eden is looked at as this beachhead of order and beauty and shalom and rightness in the midst of chaos or out of chaos. Israel then is supposed to be this beacon, this beachhead of shalom, of right relationship with God, of safety, of rightness in the midst of a chaotic and often crazy world. This is who Israel was supposed to be. A beacon in the middle of the night for all of the nations to see. So that's how that's... Paul in Colossians talks about uh, shining and uh, letting light shine. Jesus talks about it in Matthew. This is all imagery borrowed from the Old Testament uh, that was originally given to the Jews. Uh, this is who they were supposed to be. Briefly, as we close, let's ask the last question. Where did they end up? What happened? If God's intention for Israel was for them to be a city on a hill, for the, to be this beacon in the world, um, what happened to them? I want you to turn to the book of Hosea. And if there's a book in the, the Old Testament that, that paints the picture of how things ended uh, vividly, it's Hosea. Uh, this is a book about a whore. It's a book about uh, an adulterous prostitute. Um, Hosea 2.2 says this, Rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife. I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look on her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Uh, Three, verses one to three say this. The Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. (laughs) We need to find out about those raisin cakes. (laughs) Verse 3 says, I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will live with you. Verse, chapter 4, verses 1 to 2. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring you. Against you who live in the land, there is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There is only cursing, lying, and murder, stealing, and adultery. They break all the bounds and bloodshed <coughs> follows bloodshed. Where did they end up? Where does Israel end at the end of the Old Testament? Then you have the 400 silent years and then you have Jesus showing up. But where does the story end for Israel? You have prophet after prophet after prophet saying, you've been unfaithful. You were to be a covenant partner with God. The spouse of 
God the Creator, the wife of God the, 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 the groom, excuse me, the bride of the groom. Get that one right. That's who you were supposed to be. And the prophets say you were an adulteress, you were unfaithful, you, you, you worshipped other gods. Uh, arguably, Israel lost sight of the goal. They forgot what it was all about. Initially, uh, it was about others. It was about blessing others. It was about serving the nations and being neighbors. All the stuff about, uh, about uh, the poor and the broken and the hopeless and all that. Read the, read, uh, the story of the Israelites, especially in uh, Exodus and Deuteronomy. And, and they have all kinds of laws that seem really, really weird and bizarre. Like, don't harvest your field to the edge because that's for the foreigner and the alien, for the widow and the orphan. Uh, take care of those that need around you. If there are people who are oppressed and broken... Take them in. That was their role. And originally, that would, it, it's, that's what it was about. But somewhere along the way, it became about them. Their prosperity, their place in the world, their favor uh, before God, their blessing of God. It became about their traditions, their culture, their livelihood, instead of those who live outside of Israel. Stay tuned when we talk about the church in a couple weeks. But they failed to be the centrifugal force of redemption that God had, had intended them to be, and they were affected by this centripetal nature of the human heart. Luther says that sin is the heart turned in on itself. That's what Israel fell prey to. She became a harlot and an unfaithful wife to the covenant God, Yahweh. Um, we're going to just listen to one more song, and uh, I'll warn you that the language in this is pretty strong, um, but it's true. And uh, so we'll play it. Also, friends, the words will be on the screen, but you don't need to sing them. They're just for you to reflect on. Child. Oh, I don't 
stand for, that you called to do something in the world. God, their story is our story. Insofar as we're connected to that. And so God, I pray that this morning you would find us with repentant hearts. Hearts that say, God, forgive us for ways that we have been unfaithful. God, for ways that we have, like like the Israelites, not lived up to what you've asked us to do. We look forward to, to next week where it seems that there's a climax in the story. But God, this week, would you just impress on our hearts what does it mean to be your people? What does it mean to be used by God in the world for good, for justice, for mercy, for compassion? All of the things that you wished for, that you dreamt for Israel. I pray that you'd allow us to press into those. and the folks who really put a lot of effort into this, the, the stories. Um, I think we've got that working, so we're going to just close with that. Um, and uh, we will see you next week, hopefully.